This morning's scripture reading is taken from the prophecies of Isaiah. But now this is what the Lord says, he who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt for your ransom, Cush and Seba in your stead. Since you were precious and honored in my sight, and because I love you, I will give people in exchange for you, nations in exchange for your life. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bring your children from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who was called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Lead out those who have eyes but are blind, who have ears but are deaf. All the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. Which of their gods foretold this and proclaimed to us the former things? Let them bring in their witnesses to prove they were right so that others may hear and say it is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and apart from me, there is no savior. I have revealed and saved and proclaimed, I and not some foreign God among you. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, that I am God. Yes, and from ancient days I am he. No one can deliver out of my hand. When I act, who can reverse it? This is what the Lord says, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. For your sake, I will send to Babylon and bring down as fugitives all the Babylonians in the ships in which they took pride. I am the Lord your Holy One, Israel's creator, your King. This is what the Lord says, he who made a way through the sea, a path through the mighty waters, who drew out the chariots and horses, the army and reinforcements together, and they lay there never to rise again, extinguished, snuffed out like a wick. Forget the former things, do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing, now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. The wild animals honor me, the jackals and the owls, because I provide water in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland to give drink to my people, my chosen, the people I form for myself, that they may proclaim my praise. The title of the sermon this morning is A New Thing, a new thing that, that uh, phrase you just heard, God says, see, I'm doing a new thing. And we've been talking about that a lot uh, with respect to our church as a congregation. We've talked more about our church as a church and what's going on at our church, uh, these self-referential statements, so much more than we ever have before over the past six or seven months. It's basically just been that same... Uh, 
phrase or you know, a couple lines you just heard every week, some new version of that of, you know, God says, forget the old stuff. I'm doing a new thing. It's springing up. Do you not perceive it? Can't you see it? Can't you see it? I'm doing a new thing. Forget the old stuff. And that's what we've been saying about uh, OMCC, you know, about this church. And this morning, I want to still talk about a new thing, but not about the church. I want to talk about if, if the church is, you know, us as a community is uh, in the middle, then you can go bigger and you can go smaller than that. So I want to talk about a new thing, God doing a new thing on a way more macro level. What, what does it mean for God to do a new thing globally and kind of the arc of history? And then also on a more micro level, what does it mean for God to do a new thing in you? And I think what we'll do is we'll start with the macro for a little bit, just as an intro, uh, and then shift to the micro, to the individual, and then go back to the, the macro at the end, I think, but we shall see. Um, so first on the macro level, God doing a new thing, it's funny, like, you know, you think of God, and, and this is true, but uh, there's all these puzzles, all these logical puzzles, if you really try to put all his attributes on a page, you know, we've talked about this, um, about the philosophers, and they, they try to quantify God, and it just is always a mess. And so, uh, God never changes. You know, he, he knows everything from the very beginning. Uh, and it says, even in Scripture, it says that he never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And yet, here he's saying, I'll forget the old stuff, I'm doing something new. So, you know, it's, there's an interesting tension there. And it's absolutely true. It has to be true. We know it has to be true that he knows everything in advance and has the whole thing planned out. So hold that with one side of your brain. Then with the other side of your brain, read the Bible for what it says, which is that he changes his mind all the time. And it's like, well, that didn't work. Let's try something else. I don't know how those two things fit together. I, I don't. But you have to look at both of them. You have to. And so it starts from the very beginning. He makes the world. And, you know, so Bible's a very long book. And we're like three pages in. And he says, oh, well, let's scratch that and start over. I mean, this is uh, Genesis chapter 1. He makes the world. Genesis chapter 6. Like, this is less than 1% of the way through the book. He's like, well, that was botched. Let's, let's do it again. This is God. He's like, forget the old stuff. Let's do, let's do a new thing. It's weird. It's really weird. It's also weird to think about that creation itself was a new thing. You know, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, a lot of people think a better translation would be when God started to make the heavens and the earth. Because there's a lot of stuff that happened before he made the heavens and the earth. And that explains kind of why, you know, he's uh, making the world and then flood and remaking it. Uh, it's this move, counter move with Satan, you know, and just to be clear, uh, it, it, it's not like Eastern philosophy, yin and yang, where there are equally matched forces. So God's still in control, and yet, and yet, the battle still somehow seems very real, very real, where, where Satan makes a move, and then God has to like shuffle everything to make a counter move, and don't accuse me of heresy, I know he knows the whole thing, in advance, so I, I can't figure it out either, but that's definitely how it plays out in the book. 
is God makes this perfect world, Satan has his counter move, and God's like, all right, well, we got to flip it now. And so before, you know, before he ever made the heavens and the earth, uh, you know, it, it talks about in Job how the angels were there watching him make earth. Uh, you know, there was a war in heaven. Lucifer, the angel, rebelled. There's only three angels named in the Bible. Gabriel, you know, who comes to Mary, and Michael, and Lucifer. So they each were like their top three generals. And they each had a third of the, the whole heavenly host under them. And, and one of the top three guys decides to rebel, and there's a war in heaven, and God casts him out. And, uh, and, and then that's all this prehistory that we don't even know. And then the earth is a new thing. Human beings are a new thing. It's almost like he, sometimes you get the idea, you get the feeling that he's like bored. And he's like, all right, well, it would be too easy. It would be too easy if we just, you know, did it the simple way. And so forget the old stuff. We're going to do something new. We're going to come back to all that at the end. Uh, but just as an a, uh, introduction that <laughs> will seem to not connect to anything for a while, uh, let's leave that there. And let's shift to talking about a new thing on an individual level. God doing a new thing in you. So we've been talking about how God has been doing a new thing in this church, but what does it mean for God to do a new thing in you? Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. New creature, everything's new. And this is the whole concept of being born again. You know, you got to start like Nicodemus comes to Jesus. He says, so what do I need to do? He's like, you can start completely over. This is, forget the old stuff. You got to do something new. It's just like the flood. Like, wipe the slate clean. We got to start over. This isn't working. It's uh, being born again or it's dying and being raised to life again. That's what the folks, uh, the 40 folks are so that, uh, in December, came up here to get baptized. And that's what they were saying. I want to start over. I want, I want to do something new. And God wants to do something new in you. What does that mean? I think there's a, a challenging word here for one group of people and then a more comforting word for another group of people. So uh, you got to try to figure out which one is, is for you. It's very important because... Uh, if you're supposed to receive the comforting word and you focus on the challenging word, you know, you're going to get all discouraged and the challenging word isn't for you and, you know, vice versa. The challenging word is for those of you that uh, had some advantage, some natural advantage or some set of natural advantages coming to Christ before you became a Christian. In order for you to cooperate with God doing a new thing in you and making you into a new person, what, what that means is you have to lay everything down. You have to let it all go. And immediately, you know, uh, he's so different. When you read the Gospels, he talks to one person, and then you read the next conversation, and you're like, is this the same guy? But he's talking to people where they're at. And so there, there's this group of people to whom he's just extremely challenging in your face because they're hedging, because they like what they got, 
and they want to add him in. He's like, no, I'm doing a new thing. I'm doing a completely new thing in you. You can't add me in. And it, it's just this absolute and total call to surrender. So, you know, he uh, approaches this guy, Peter, this commercial fisherman, and Peter hasn't caught anything all night. And uh, Jesus tells him, why don't you go back out and, you know, put your, put your net down again. And he does, and it's, you know, like a bajillion fish. I think that's what it says in the Bible, bajillion. Um, and Peter does not say, like, yes, look at all these fish. Like, whoopee, like, do it again. Great magic trick. Like, I'm so happy. I'm going to make so much money. He is, he's like, mortified. He sees all the fish, and he says to Jesus, go away from me. Because he knows what it means. Wait a minute. If that guy can do that, then it's either all or nothing. And Jesus says, uh, Peter, leave your nets, leave your profession, and come follow me. And Peter does. There's no journey. There is no journey. There is no path. There is no progress. There is no getting there slowly over time. Either he's Jesus or he's not. Either he's the Son of God or he's not. There is no journey. Now, afterwards, there's a journey. Sure. And there can be a journey as you hang around in the crowd trying to figure out, is he the Son of God or not? That's fine. You know, Peter didn't have any room for doubt anymore because of the way that Jesus had revealed himself to Peter specifically. So I'm not saying you can't, if you're on the fence about who Jesus is, that's one thing. Fine. That can be a journey. But once you decide, once you realize who he is, there's no journey at that point. You either give him everything or you don't. You know, it's like we've talked about with giving at this church it, it, the, the absurdity of it, the way it gets sometimes talked about is, you know, okay, so this is the God of the universe. He created you. He created the stars. And he asked you to give him 10% of your money. And you're, you're like, well, okay. So I think I'm going to start at 2% and grow from there. <laughs> what part of the word God did you not understand? And it's the same with Jesus. There's no journey. Leave your nets right then and follow him. Same thing with all, all sorts of people in the Bible. You know, uh, Elijah comes to Elisha and says, all right, you're, you're going to be with me now. And Elisha, who was a farmer, burns his plows on the spot. Just burns them. That's over with. We're done with that now. A new creation. The old things have passed. The new has come. Totally new person. And and anybody who tries to get out of this, you know, there's this guy, uh, Jesus says to this one guy, follow me, like he said to Peter. You, you know, you, you, don't, you think that everybody had the response that Peter did, but it's not true. He says to this other guy, follow me, and the guy's like, oh, actually, I really want to. I just um, have to tell my family goodbye first. And Jesus is like, no, I'm too late. Too late. You think I've got time for you to tell your family goodbye? Follow me. I said, follow me. Did you hear me? I said, follow me. 
that's a challenging word to some of you, is are you still trying to hold on to your old life? God wants to do a new thing in you. He wants to take you to a new place. But you have to let go of everything. Everything that ever gave you comfort. That's to another guy, you know. Another guy says, I want to follow you. And he's like, no, you don't, because I don't have anywhere to stay. And the guy's like, oh, yeah, good point. And he walks away. (laughs) Everything that gives you comfort, everything that you clung to for a sense of who you were, all of that is done with now. Like we talked about last week, for a lot of us, that's religion. For a lot of that, us, that's a, a certain interpretation of Christianity. But for you, maybe it is like it was for Peter or Elisha. Maybe it's uh, the type of work you do. Uh, the, the most obvious one is obvious, like a, a, something sinful, you know. Uh, it's figuring out what your career is one thing. But I am, I, I had a sense this week, and I, I could be wrong about this, you know, and I, and when I say I had a sense, I, the sense did not come with like faces or names. Like I wasn't, I'm not thinking of anybody in particular. But I did have a sense at our church that there are a significant number of people who are saying, oh yeah, I want to do the new thing. But just completely holding on to this part of their life that they know is not of God. And they're just acting like they can go together. They can't go together. He wants to do a new thing, and you, you have to lay that down. And if you don't, you're just asking for suffering, just one foot in, one foot out. It's just awful. So just give him everything. That's, that's one group of you. But there's another group here. So there's another group. You can ignore all that, and you get to hear something nicer because you've already been through the hard stuff. I woke up this morning... Uh, this doesn't happen, this hasn't, ha- it's only happened a couple of Sundays, even over the past seven months, and before that, it never happened at all, but I woke up with a, a, two verses emblazoned on my mind, like I just woke up, and it's like, you know, these, these phrases are just repeating themselves in my mind, not verses I'd read any time this week, not verses I went to sleep thinking about, I'll tell you what the second one was uh, a little bit later on, but the first one was, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to bind up the brokenhearted. I've never cared about that phrase before, but I woke up this morning and right there, just running through my mind, like somebody was saying into my ear, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to bind up the brokenhearted. And the me there is me, this me. You know, Jesus uses that passage, Isaiah chapter 61. Uh, in his first sermon ever, he says, Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He says, you remember what Isaiah talked about? He said, that's me. Good news for the poor. The year of the Lord's favor. That's happening right now. I'm proclaiming that right now. But then he sends us out in his name. And the same spirit that was upon him to do those things can be upon us. Now, you don't just get to make it up. I don't get to just decide when the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to bind up the brokenhearted. That's not how it works. I don't just logic from the text and say, well, I guess I can do it too. No. But if the Spirit of the Lord comes upon me to bind up the brokenhearted, then I'm going to do it. 
And so some of you here this morning are brokenhearted. And God brought you here, and God spoke to me in my bed, and he put his spirit upon me just so you could come and just be bound up, have your heart bound up, have your wounds healed. In Jesus' name, by Jesus' power and authority. The rest of that Isaiah 61 passage says he's going to take the ashes and give you something beautiful instead. He's going to give you a crown. He's going to take your shame and replace it with an inheritance. And that's what God wants to do for some of you. That's the new thing for some of you, is you just got a bad hand dealt to you. Maybe recently, or maybe all through, I don't know. And God says, I want to do a new thing. We're done with all that now. Now, it's not like the first group where you got to say, i got to cut all that stuff off. No, for you, for those of you who are hurting, God's saying, no, I'm doing this. We're done with all that now. We're going into something new. I'm doing a new thing in you. My dad uh, was in high school in the 1970s in Northern California. And uh, speaking of new things, uh, and I think we'll probably come back to this at the end. In the 1970s in California, starting in San Francisco, um, there was this revival that broke out. It was called the Jesus People, Jesus People, or the Jesus Movement. Um, and, you know, all of a sudden, one of the things that precipitated it was uh, this guy named Ken Taylor in the, lived in the Chicago suburbs. He was trying to read his Bible to, to his kids every night and couldn't understand it. His kids couldn't understand it. It was, you know, old... There weren't a lot of modern translations. So he starts just paraphrasing it, riding the, work, uh, the train to work in Chicago every day and has this paraphrase called the Living Bible. And Billy Graham gets a hold of it and everybody's heard of it. It is the most denigrated Bible translation I know of because the guy doesn't speak Greek or Hebrew. And he's just going from English and just paraphrasing. He's not a scholar. He's just paraphrasing it. You know, and people are like, well, that's not the Bible. Well, then why did God use it to do a new thing? People say, I like a Bible translation that sounds like the Bible. What? Who cares? God doesn't. God doesn't want it to sound like the Bible. He wants it to sound like something that's going to cut your heart. And so we have this new translation, and it's all kind of colloquial, and all the stuffy people are like, that's not the Bible. And all of a sudden, hippies are getting saved like crazy all up and down the coast. So my dad's in high school. And uh, his dad, my dad's dad, uh, schizophrenia, alcoholism, physical and emotional abuse. And uh, my dad was a hardcore atheist, even in high school wanted to be an engineer. And some of these kids that have gotten caught up in this revival, you know, they're so zealous, they're doing crazy things like going door to door of every kid in the high school. They're just like, well, if Jesus is Jesus, then what do we care about being embarrassed? They go knock on every kid's door. 
in high school. And they go to my dad's door and knock on the door and they say, uh, would you like to know if you're going to heaven when you die? He said, nope, and slammed the door in their face. <laughs> and then he couldn't stop thinking about it. And he ended up you know, wandering into their church and giving himself over to this person they were talking about, this Jesus movement, becoming one of these Jesus people. And God did a new thing in him. God took him out of the family he was in and put him in a new family. Started a new family line. He rescued him from slavery. And then I was born into freedom because of what God did for my dad, the new thing he did for him. He can do that for you. He can give you a new family. He can give you a new family. He can give you a new name. He wants to bind up your broken heart. That's on the, the individual level. Some of you, how long are you going to just mess around for? Just get rid of it. Get rid of all the other stuff and follow him. Others of you, let him do this for you. Let him bind up your heart. Let him do a new thing and give you beauty for ashes. On a macro level, and we won't spend as long on this, we're, we're already running short on time. Um, I referred to this already months ago, but then I realized I was kind of cryptic about it and didn't really spell it out in terms of the new thing uh, that God's doing globally. You know, we talked about he, he makes the world and then starts over with the flood, and uh, there's a thousand years from Adam to the, the flood, and then there's another uh, thousand years or so to Abraham, where the story really starts, and uh, then, you know, 2,000 years to Jesus, and this whole arc of this story, he's weaving in this battle with the devil about trying to get us back and trying to get the world back to what it was supposed to be. You know, it makes this perfect world. Snake comes in the garden. Everything's messed up. I mean, why do we have broken hearts? Why are so many people brokenhearted? Why do fathers hit their kids? That's not what God wanted. And so now we're, by the Bible's timeline, you know, 6,000 years in to God trying to fix that. And here's what I mean by, you know, he's just confusing and maybe he's getting bored and we can't figure him out is if he wanted to fix it like that, he could have. And yet we've got this 6,000-year story of God trying to put things right and putting things right. And so the most decisive move in that is Jesus coming, God himself, you know. So you got God, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. And you got the angels, and then he makes a world with human beings, and then he becomes one of the human beings, one of the people, one of the persons of the Trinity, or three but one. Jesus comes, dies for our sins, to redeem us from the devil. But that was 2,000 years ago. And the weird thing about Jesus coming to save the world is what a botched attempt it was. Now again, you're gonna, you're gonna accuse me of heresy. But it reminds you of creation, you know? Like, this is God. If God's going to do something, he should, like, do it. 
He makes the world, and you line up, start over. Jesus comes to save the world, and he just ends up dying. And it's like, well, I guess I'll have to come back, you know, try a second time. Which it just always bothered me. Like, why, why does it take two times? Why can't he get it done the first time? Why couldn't God make the world right the first time? There's a place where Paul says, don't despise prophecies. Test everything. And what he means by that is when somebody claims to be speaking the word of God, anybody, be open to the idea that it might be the word of God. It could be anybody. Kate, our five-year-old, um, over leading up to Christmas, she started getting like more creative with her prayers, like kind of riffing. Um, I was like, I didn't want to like quench her enthusiasm, you know, so I just kind of let it roll, even though some of the stuff was like, what is she talking about? That's a little off. I think I'm, it's my job as the pastor dad to correct her, but I decided not to. And so then on Christmas Eve, she's praying and she's just getting into it. And she said, and God, thank you. Thank you that when, when the world had just begun, when it was just Adam and Eve, you created a new holiday, Christmas. And I'm just like, oh my gosh. Like, I, please don't let anybody hear this, that she's so poorly educated about the Bible. Like, I have no idea why she's talking about Christmas related to creation and Adam and Eve and a new holiday. You know, they're obsessed with holidays. It's like, what's the next holiday? you know, like Valentine's Day or whatever. And so for her, like, it wasn't even about Jesus coming. It was just like, you made a new holiday, you know? <laughs> but I didn't say anything. Uh, and just let it go. Then, like, you know, mid-January, she's, I overhear her talking to Brittany. And she's like, why are there two holidays in the same season? And, Brittany, you know, uh, in case you're wondering what our house is like, it's not a house where we just kneel down and say, I don't know, Kate, why are there? You know, it's like, we're just like, uh, I don't know, and we got to go to school. Um, and it's just kind of in one ear and out. I wasn't even part of the conversation, but I just heard her say, why are there two, two holidays in the same season? I didn't even know what she was talking about. I had no idea what she was talking about. And then uh, I was walking her to school. It was this weird thing where uh, I had to take her by herself. Oh, she, was, she, she thought she was sick, and then she wasn't. And so I'm taking her. I've never walked her to school, just the two of us before, because uh, the other girls are always with us. So we're walking to school, and this was like a couple weeks later, and she goes, Dad, why are there two holidays in the same season? And now it's just the two of us, so I can't get out of it. So I'm like, what, what do you mean? What two holidays? And she's like, Christmas and New Year. Christmas and New Year, like, there's two holidays, but they're, they're so close to each other, and they're in the same season. Why? And I, I'm, you know, so not interested in this question, and <laughs> I'm just like, well, it's just kind of like one holiday, really. Like, you get the week off, and, you know, Christmas <laughs> is at the end of the year, and she's like, oh. And she just kind of uh, quiet. I'm like, well, wh why? What were you thinking? And she was like, oh, I was thinking that it was like Christmas is like when God made the world and then New Year's is like the flood. And like the, 
number of bombs that are going off like in my brain and my heart. Because I'm sure that this is, I haven't even looked it up yet. Um, I'm sure this has been written about. I'm sure if I had read more widely, I would have heard of this before. I had never heard of anything like this before. And I have no idea where she got it. You know, we've never talked about the flood in connection to New Year's Day or, <laughs> or even like new creation. You know, we haven't talked about the flood. And, you know, and, and her, she was the one that came up with this bizarre connection between Christmas and, uh, you know, creation. But as soon as she said it, it was like God talking right to me and all of these things in Scripture, like, unfolded and unlocked for me in that moment. Jesus compares the second coming to the flood of Noah. Why did God make the world and then remake it right after? Why did, God, why did Jesus have to come and then come back again? I don't know. I don't know. But somehow it made perfect sense to her. Two holidays in the same season. And it is all in the same season. You know, we're just living in those couple of pages between creation and the flood. I didn't, it, you know, I didn't come up with it. She did. Um, but God did. You know, God revealed it to her because she's open, because she doesn't have too much theology to where she, she knows that that's not the right answer. Because he just likes to do things the way he likes to do them. And he likes to do new things. So that, those couple of pages between Jesus coming the first time and Jesus coming again, you know, it's, uh, it has been 2,000 years, which is a long time. Um, but in terms of God doing a new thing globally, things have really sped up in the last 100 years. In the book of Acts, Peter harkens back to this prophecy about God pouring out his spirit on all flesh. And Peter says, that's what we're heading into now. And everybody starts uh, you know, speaking in tongues. All through the book of Acts, the, the spirit comes on them, and they start speaking in other languages, and there's all these miracles. And it's like, all right, this is, this is going to go quick. And then, like, 150 AD, it just starts declining. Like, it, everything starts tapering off. It's like, What? Until, and this is what I mentioned earlier in the fall, until 1900-ish. More has happened in the church since 1900, in the last 100 years, than the previous 1900 years, or let's say, you know, from 150 to the year 1900, you know. The, the, the 20th century was, there was nothing like it except the first century. What's happening? God's doing a new thing. He's doing a new Thing. He's pouring out his spirit on all flesh, just like he said he was going to. And the miracles are picking up, and all of a sudden, people are speaking in tongues again, and all of a sudden, people are prophesying again. You got five-year-olds explaining to you the connection between creation and the flood and Christmas and New Year and the first coming of Christ, Advent, and the second coming. God is back. God is back on the scene. He's doing a new thing. And we can't miss it. You know, it makes perfect sense who he chose to do it. He, he chose the lowly like he always chooses the lowly. 
like I said in the fall, it's been a hundred years, it's been over a hundred years, and scholars are still saying, oh, well, it, it, it's not real, you know. This isn't God. The miracles aren't happening. The, what, what I'm referring to is a phenomenon that uh, is referred to as Pentecostalism. It's like a, a segment of the church, Pentecostals. Like a, like a backwoods segment of the church. And you can find all these articles online about, this is like, this is serious. This is com- people with a completely straight face are, are saying, these long articles, how is it, what are the sociological explanations? These are Christians, or so-called Christians. What are the sociological explanations for why Pentecostalism is exploding and the rest of the church is shrinking. Like, why, why is this happening? Maybe because God is doing a new thing. And back to the flood thing. You know, this is the boat. Like, the supernatural, Holy Spirit, miracles, speaking in tongues, prophecy. This is the boat. The flood is coming, and this is the boat. This is the boat that God is providing. This is the new thing. His spirit being poured out on all flesh. And we can't miss that. And if we miss that, we will miss him. That's the second phrase that came to mind this morning. The first was, I already shared with you, you know, bind up the broken heart. The second phrase, that, again, I hadn't read it recently, emblazoned on my mind, woke up this morning, the spirit and the bride say, come. The spirit and the bride say, come. The bride is the church. The Spirit, you know, Holy Spirit. They're speaking to Jesus. The Spirit and the bride say to Jesus, come. The Trinity, until today, this is the first time ever that the Trinity has ever moved me emotionally. You know, it's always just been a concept to me. There was something so, I couldn't have figured this out. It just, God had to, Speak it to me. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus leaves, sends his Holy Spirit, sends God, the Holy Spirit. We have God here with, among us. We're the church. We're the bride, the Spirit, and the bride. And the Spirit, God himself, the Spirit, Father, Son, and Spirit, they were all together. They made the world together. And now the Spirit's here without Jesus. And he, he misses him. He's come back. Come back. The spirit and the bride say, come quickly. Lord Jesus, when are you coming back? When are we going to just end this finally, this 6,000-year story? No more pain, please. Like, okay, we get it. You wanted an interesting story, but can we just be done with this and be saved once and for all? And the way he's doing it is through the same way he always is, the same way he did it when he came the first time. Signs and the wonders, supernatural languages, miracles, God speaking directly to people without them having to interpret a text. That's the new thing. That's the new thing he's doing, preparing for his return. And if we don't let him do a new thing in us, if we don't surrender everything, if we don't open ourselves up to his healing, if we don't lay down our pride 
and associate with whoever we have to associate with to be part of it, then we will miss it. Jesus says, it's, remember Noah? All those people that didn't think it was going to happen, and then it happened, like a thief in the night. Let's pray. Jesus, we do say, come. Come back. Come back and finish it. Come back and get it done. We're so grateful for your spirit. We're so grateful that you come near to us through your spirit. That you empower us, that you make us a new creation. But we want the whole thing to be made new. All of creation groans waiting for your return. We groan, waiting for your return. So with the Spirit, we, your church, we, your bride, say, come. And do whatever you have to do in us to prepare us for your return, to prepare us for the wedding day. Whatever we need to lay aside, give us the power and the grace to lay it aside. Whatever wounds we need healed, heal our wounds. Come and draw us into you, into the ark, into safety. Help us to forget the old things, to forget the old things and put them out of our mind so we can join this new thing that you're doing. Pray these things in your name. Amen.